Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we're honored to welcome Mr. Uh, Michael Cannon. Michael is the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, which is uh, pretty outstanding that you gave us the time to come talk to us. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, we um, we kind of got connected with Michael through our a guest a few weeks ago, Sam Metz. Uh, so he's here in Portland and and a um, he's a Democrat. <laughs> and so we talked about single payer healthcare and and how how we can um, how we can get more people better coverage for less money. And you know, I have a pretty I don't want to speak for Nick, but I have a pretty wide uh, libertarian streak myself. And so I'm I'm really interested to hear kind of a rebuttal of uh, what the libertarian aspect of, or the libertarian thesis for healthcare is. So um, before we get into that, uh, Michael, why don't you just give a a minute or two, um, just to give a bio, who you are, how you got into politics, how you got where you are, that sort of thing. Sure, thanks. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. I've been there for 17 years now. Prior to that, I worked on Capitol Hill for the Republican leadership. Even though I was not a Republican at the time, I was a Libertarian, and I, I made that clear to them before they hired me. And they said, fine, but you can only work on these issues where we agree with Libertarians and on these other issues like gay marriage and foreign policy and the drug war and all sorts of other issues. They said, you can't say anything about those. I said, all right, fine. Uh, prior to that, I worked for a Libertarian grassroots organization, uh, and, and it was there that I really got into health policy. They hired me to do health policy. And it's sort of a funny story about how uh, they hired me to do health care. Uh, I wanted a job working in public policy, not particularly in healthcare, but they offered me that position and they say, you have to understand, you know, before you say yes, you have to understand the reason this position is open is because no one else wants it. <laughs> I said, I don't, I don't care. I'll take it. And that's how I got into health policy. And it's an interesting thing because when you talk to People who work in health policy on the free market side, almost all of them got into health policy the same way. On the left, like Sam Metz and others, they get into public policy because of healthcare. But people who support free markets and free market healthcare, they don't get into public policy because of that issue. They get into it for other reasons. And if they end up working in health policy, it's because they sort of fell into it or it fell into their laps. And and I I think that is both a cause and an explanation for where we are in healthcare in, the, in this country right now. In the U.S. health sector is so heavily, we could say socialized, we could say there's so much government involvement that 
it's very easy to demagogue free market ideas as trying to take away someone's subsidy and therefore take away their healthcare and leave them with less. And as a result, because it's so easy to demagogue uh, politicians that try to advance free market ideas end up losing elections. We've seen Democrats do that to Republicans. You're trying to cut taxes. Uh, you're trying to uh, take Medicare away from grandma in order to provide tax cuts to the rich. So Republicans stay away from this issue. And because they stay away from this issue, uh, uh, you can't raise money in order to uh, uh, advance. It's harder to raise money to advance free market ideas. It's harder to draw people into uh, free market advocates into a public policy to work on healthcare, and it becomes this sort of self-perpetuating problem where uh, because the government is so heavily involved in healthcare, it is harder to get people to advance the ideas that would get it out. You know, I noticed this during COVID and it's not, I'm not sure if it's an American thing or like just a human thing. So we, we tend to have a bias for action. You know, it's very hard to convince a broad group of people that, hey, we're going to do less and you're going to be better off for it in the long run. They want, they want you to do something. I mean, just look at, look at Cuomo in New York. I mean, he was made some terrible decisions at the beginning of COVID and he almost got away with it. Terrible life decisions. If, we, if we're going to talk about Cuomo's <laughs> right. terrible life decisions in, in general, the, the guy is a right. serial sexual well, harasser. Well, he has, he has gotten away with it. Yeah. He has well, gotten away with those poor decisions. If he's going to be held accountable for something right now, it, it's going to be the sexual harassment. It's not going to be the poor decision right. with regard to COVID, which, yeah. is, which is really interesting that right. you, you can make policy decisions that cause so many unnecessary Ooh. deaths and and you can stay in office, but if you sexually, if you're a serial sexual harasser, you cannot stay in office. The injury from one is clearly, I mean, they're both very bad, but yeah. the injury from one is clearly worse than the other, but the political system only disciplines the lesser, politicians for the lesser of those. Yeah. Uh, that I think is not only interesting, but instructive. I think that I mean, even you even look at red states um, in, in the COVID debacle, where I think they tried really hard to have the more hands off approach. You know, people can do their own thing. And they got basically bullied into taking mandates and, and having having government involved in this decision just because I think that that bias. Um, so anyway, back to uh, so we, we talked about single payer healthcare with with Sam Metz and you know, he made a lot of good points. <laughs> At least I thought he, you know, I, I mentioned before, I have a pretty wide libertarian streak. And I, I believe that, you know, when, when you are able to solve a problem with the free market, that you should solve it with the free market, you know, before you look to government, government can be the last resort for those corner cases that just don't really work well with traditional economics. And I, I kind of had, prior to this conversation had thought that healthcare is one of those things, you know, you've got, when you have a life-saving drug, people are going to pay whatever it costs to get that life-saving drug. There, there's really no price discrimination. You can't, maybe we're seeing this with insulin where people are, where they're raising prices and all the, and the people who use insulin to stay alive uh, are complaining about it, but they don't really have any leverage because they need the insulin and they'll pay whatever it takes. So I, I'm curious to see to hear how you would solve a problem like that. So we published an entire book on this problem of uh, high prices in healthcare. Summarize in 30 minutes. <laughs> sure. Well, and I better summarize it because it is a very thick book. But it's by two of our adjunct scholars, both law professors. One of them is also an MD. It's called Overcharged: Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare. 
they start up with the most punchable face in America, which is uh, uh, Martin Shkreli's face. He's the guy who jacked <laughs> the price for Daraprim and then was very smug about it. The, they explained the reason why he was able to jack up the price for Daraprim, why why insulin manufacturers have been able to jack up the price for those drugs, why makers of erectile dysfunction drugs, and, and, uh, and on down the line, Sivaldi, uh, never mind those other drugs, but Sivaldi, which is a life-saving cure for hepatitis C. The reason why these drug launch prices are so high and you see such uh, rapid increases in prices for even generic off-patent drugs is because the government incur is because of government involvement. If the government weren't getting so heavily involved in the healthcare sector, there's no way the drug companies could get away with these uh, out outrageously high prices. But the government it gets involved in several ways that encourage drug companies to jack up the prices for drugs, encourage hospitals to jack up the prices for hospital services and so forth. When it comes to drugs, the main way that the government gets involved here is, or, or at least the, the first way, is by giving pharmaceutical manufacturers marketing exclusivity, either through the patent system or through other mechanisms, so that no one else can offer that drug, no one can compete down the prices that the manufacturers charge, so they just charge higher and higher and higher prices. That has happened with Colchicine, it's happened with, that's what happened with Daraprim, it was an off-patent uh, medication, and, uh, and the manufacturers got uh, well, the manufacturers of got marketing exclusivity. I believe their prem was off patent. There are just no competitors uh, because of some other government interventions. And so they jacked up the prices uh, to outrageous levels. And patients who depend on these drugs you know, really have nowhere to go. Uh, some of them try to go to foreign countries. And, uh, and, and uh, uh, Bernie Sanders has led um, expeditions into Canada to, to buy <laughs> more affordable drugs. But but these are all government interventions uh, that are that are allowing this to happen. The patent system, uh, other forms of marketing exclusivity, the FDA uh, the FDA grants to drug manufacturers, the fact that the federal government encourages excessive health insurance causes prices to rise. You know, before Obamacare mandated 100% coverage for contraceptives. The price of hormones, prices for hormones and oral contraceptives were falling relative to inflation, following the same sort of trajectory as over-the-counter drugs. And these are prescription drugs, following the same trajectory as those prices so that they're falling relative to inflation. But as soon as Obamacare mandates 100% coverage for these drugs and the manufacturers know that the insurance companies have to cover those drugs, they jack up the prices. Because what are the insurance companies going to do? They can't drop coverage for those drugs. Their enrollees will be upset if they do that. Uh, they have to cover them. They have to cover them at 100% because the government said so, and so the prices rise. Uh, and then, uh, so oh, excessive insurance contributes to this problem. Uh, and that's not just with drug prices. It contributes to excessive prices for physician and hospital services and so forth. And I touched on another way that the government helps keep these prices high, uh, trade barriers. The reason Bernie Sanders had to load people on a bus to go up to Canada is because the U.S. government prohibits you from buying drugs from a Canadian pharmacy online and having them shipped to your home on a regular basis or or prohibits retailers from doing that, buying those buying drugs from Canada where the manufacturers sell them at lower prices and then selling them, uh, buy, uh, having them shipped here to the United States and selling them at lower prices here. The 
U.S. government prohibits, uh, to some extent, you from doing that on a personal basis and retailers from doing that on a commercial basis because uh, the drug companies like it that way. The drug companies want to be able to sell drugs at higher, the highest possible price in the United States and then the highest possible price in Canada. And they don't want the Canadian drugs coming back into the market to compete down these high prices in the United mm-hmm. States. So they support this government intervention. And, and, and the health sector is just littered with these sorts mm-hmm. of government interventions that are keeping prices for all sorts of health services high. Well, I got a question. So there, I was there was a line in uh, one of the episodes of The West Wing, which is like, which gets frequently mentioned on this show uh, or on our podcast. But um, one of the guys, so obviously it's a Democratic administration. One of the people says to the other, you know, it's it's just criminal that drugs cost what they cost. It costs these guys, you know, a dollar and ten cents to make each pill. And one of the other characters, who's also a Democrat in the show, says the second pill costs a dollar and ten cents to make. The first pill costs a hundred million dollars. And it's not like you're just going to a McDonald's where, okay, their unit cost is 50 cents and so they can sell hamburgers for a dollar or whatever. At some point, there's years and oftentimes decades worth of research that goes into each. I mean, just look at the coronavirus vaccine. This was a this is literally nothing short of a, of a medical miracle that we found out about this in March. And by the end of the year, there was a vaccine ready to go. I, you, I'm sure, Michael, you could speak to how rare it would be to come up with something in nine months that's as effective as the COVID vaccine. But there's a, um, we just, we don't kind of have that conceptualized. All we see is kind of what's right in front of us. And like you say, when the, when the prices end up being artificially higher because of government mandates X, Y, and Z and insurance companies mandate X, Y, and Z, it's not just a hamburger. You see the prices drive up. And while it's a problem, it's, you got to look at what you actually need to do to solve the problem, which is, a lot of times it's based on government involvement. I was going to say, if you get rid of the the patents, yeah, sorry, I was just going to repeat what Nick said, but (laughs) if you get rid of the patents and you get rid of the, um, the, the marketing, uh, I forget what you you called it, the, the marketing exclusivity. Exclusivity. Yeah. Um, is, is there still a, an incentive to develop those drugs? Um, if somebody can just copy your manufacturing process, once you've already perfected it and produced pills for pennies on the dollar? So the first pill often costs not $100 million, but a billion dollars, $2 billion. And everybody wants to pay for the second pill. Nobody wants to pay for the first pill. But if you don't pay for that first pill, you're not going to get the second pill or the third pill. Uh, and, and so you're right. You need to create incentives for people to make that first pill, to invest in the research and development of of new knowledge about what molecules are going to cure what diseases, and the patent system exists to do that. The, patent, the you know, some of my conservative friends get upset when I say that the patent system exists to raise prices. That's the purpose of the patent system. They say no, 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 to protect intellectual property. But really, the supposed market failure that uh, the government is trying to correct here is that there are the, the new information that drug research and development generates uh, is not excludable and it's not rivalrous. It's a public good. Mm. And Econ 101 teaches you when you've got a, a public good like that, then markets probably are not going to produce the socially optimal quantity uh, because people will be able to use that at a very low price and the people who generate that knowledge won't be able to profit from it. So they won't generate that knowledge. 
And the patent system exists to raise the price that the people who generate that knowledge are able to charge for it. So a patent system exists to, to raise prices. And that's how, and, that, and that's the patent system's solution to this public good problem. You give the people who generate that knowledge the exclusive right to sell it, and they will be able to charge prices that cover their, their in theory, that cover their cost of, of generating that knowledge. However, there are there are problems with the patent system. It's not as neat as, as that explanation makes it sound because drug manufacturers don't just charge, they don't just figure out, oh, well, this R&D cost us so much. And if we divide that among the number of pills that we figure we're going to sell, we'll, we'll, we'll set the price here. Uh, they don't drug manufacturers don't set prices to cover their R&D costs. Drug manufacturers set prices to maximize revenue. And there's a difference there. Uh, they will often set prices higher than they need to to cover their R&D costs because they can. And the patent system allows them to do that. So that that is part of what's driving the uh, really high launch prices and price increases that we're seeing for a lot of patented drugs and drugs with other marketing exclusivities. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, it's, and it's not, and it's not the, but it's not the only. And so that's a problem with the patent system is you can't get excessive prices, not just higher mm. prices, which is the purpose, but excessive prices where you are providing too much of a reward to R and D and maybe even getting inefficient mm -hmm. R and D and innovation. So one thing that uh, my colleagues talk about in that book that I mentioned, Overcharge, is another way to. Uh, to encourage that sort of research and development is to have the government hand out prizes to people who uh, who develop that R and D, and then let the manufacture and then let anyone manufacture the drug, uh, and uh, and let competition drive down the prices of those drugs. So, it, it, in essence, under a prize system, the government would pay for the first pill, but then everyone else would pay for the second pill, and prices would be much lower. That's an idea that Bernie Sanders has introduced this legislation. So. Uh, I, I like I like I like to 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 highlight the fact that here a Cato Institute book, a libertarian think tank's book, <laughs> is advancing an idea that Bernie Sanders has introduced as legislation. We don't see eye to eye on things like single payer, but you know, we uh, we're, we're open to uh, to ways of reducing the amount of harm government does to the far market for pharmaceuticals uh, by. Uh, coming with the alternatives so, to that system. So, the next guest that we get on the podcast, we got to get Bernie Sanders on here. We'll, we'll get no him on. We'll have him walk us through it. I'd, yeah. uh, Michael, I'd be curious for your thoughts. One of the things that I had read about you um, is that you are Obamacare's fiercest critic, which is, I, if I were you, I'd have had that tattooed on my forehead. I feel like that's the greatest thing anybody could ever say about a person. But I'd be curious to know, I... Um, when, when we spoke with Dr. Metz on our uh, previous episode or penultimately previous episode, now he, um, he, I put that to him and I said, he also, he agrees with you. He thinks that Obamacare was for, for lack of a better word, a failure. And I said, I feel like that's interesting that the, the bill that became law that, that was this massive shift, this massive takeover in a lot of aspects by the government of the healthcare industry is a failure. And his solution was to have more government takeover of the healthcare industry, was to, to just do more of the thing that by his own admission was a failure. To me, that I feel like that's a, a bit of flawed logic, but he says, no, 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 you know, the healthcare, it's, it's so big that 
there, there is no room for the 50 states to be laboratories of democracy. There is no room to tinker around the edges with cutting red tape or cutting costs and bureaucracy. We have to have this massive change. We have to affect the sea change. And this is the only way to do it is to, to do it at the federal level and to have the federal government take control. I'm guessing that that's part of some of the reasons that you are Obamacare's fiercest critic is you disagree with his take. Yeah. So uh, he's a great guy. Uh, and the pitch for single payer is a very attractive one because it, you just pass one law and then everything is taken care of. You just give it all to the government and then everybody and the government will write checks for healthcare. We know they can do that. And that because the government has taken it over and we can rely on the government to write checks for healthcare, then everybody's going to have healthcare. It's a very simple, uh, very uh, attractive pitch. Uh, and it would do unimaginable damage to uh, people's health because healthcare is so complex, it is too complex for the federal government to manage. That, that, that framing that you used, that, that there's no room for 50 laboratories of, uh, of democracy the states to go their own way is a weird framing because what it assumes is that uh, only the federal government is going to get this right. And the federal government is going to get this right for an entire country because the federal government never gets anything wrong <laughs> in healthcare, I suppose. Is that the argument? Right. right. <laughs> never. And, and the case, the argument they make for single payer is that uh, the, the best argument for single payer is the U.S. Medicare program, which is very popular. And that's their vehicle for expanding health care to 330 million Americans, single payer crowd. They just want to expand Medicare, give us Medicare for all. But if you look at the Medicare program, that should that, that idea should, if you look at it closely and look at the impact that it has had on the lives of seniors, that idea should horrify you. Because the Medicare program has not been a huge success. Yes, 66 million enrollees are utterly dependent on that program, but that's not the same as popularity. They're dependent on that program because the government is crowded out of their alternatives and uh, and the and driven up the cost of health care so much that people can't afford it without these subsidies. And the Medicare program has pay, played a role in those rising prices. It also doesn't pay uh, but, as well as, as anything else, right? I mean, it, the, the payment to doctors is considerably lower, and it's really almost subsidized by by. So this is, a, this is a persistent myth. This is a persistent myth. Okay. Look, when, when it comes to when it comes to the price for anything, anything, no one knows what the right price should be. That's why you need markets and market competition, because what what, what market competition does is it pushes the price in the right direction, whether it errors, uh, when the price is too high or too low, Adam Smith's invisible hand pushes it toward the optimal price, which is the price that generates the socially optimal level of, uh, of Band-Aids or cardiologist visits or knee surgeries or what have you. And everyone assumes that because private prices are higher and Medicare prices are lower than those private uh, prices are, that Medicare is like a better negotiator, that Medicare is getting closer to the optimal price or something like that. Uh, but it's just a monopoly or, or, or often, <laughs> no, often, often you hear this, this, this critique that Medicare pays too little. And who do we hear that critique from? Most often, well, doctors, but, but if, but there's, there's lots of evidence to suggest that not only does Medicare uh, not pay too little, it pays too much 
uh, as as often or more often than it pays too little. So you know the government setting prices for for healthcare through the Medicare program, it's going to get them wrong. It's going to set them too high in some places, too low in other places because it doesn't have the price mechanism that Adam Smith and Friedrich Hayek talked about that pushes the the price to that socially optimal level. Uh, Medicare sets prices is based on the political power of the uh, of the various actors involved. And the people with the most political power there are physicians, uh, as uh, also hospitals, and particularly physician specialists. And so Medicare, because they have so much power, Medicare ends up setting the prices for the services at those for those services probably higher than we would see in a market. There's lots of evidence to show that Medicare doesn't set prices too low, certain services too low. It sets them way too high. But the biggest problem with Medicare is not even the the, the prices. It's not on the cost side. It's on the quality side. The Medicare program has had a negative impact on the quality of healthcare for seniors and everyone else in this country. It has uh, it has prevented the sort of quality improvements that would be saving lives and cause a lot of people to die unnecessarily. Far more than have died, probably far more than have died this year due to COVID nineteen. If you look at and 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 here's how here's how that's happened. When Congress enacted Medicare in 1965, there's already a lot of evidence of low quality care in the United States. Some people estimated that poor surgical procedures cause 75, 100,000 deaths per year. Jeez. Uh, unnecessary, avoidable, preventable deaths. What Medicare did was it decided to subsidize healthcare, but instead of giving consumers the money and letting them decide how to spend it, which is what you know they could have done, they could have just expanded Social Security. Uh, expanded social security to give seniors a uh, bigger social security check and say the, the, the Delta here, the additional amount you're getting is for health insurance. Uh, we'll give sicker people uh, a bigger bump so they can afford the higher premiums insurance will charge instead of doing that. And then letting competition for seniors, healthcare dollars drive the market toward higher quality care. What Medicare did was they said, all right, we're, we're going to be the one, Congress said, we're going to be the ones buying the healthcare, and we're going to come up with a single set of rules for how we're going to buy healthcare. They're going to be fee-for-service rules, uh, which is because that's what the physician lobby likes, and they were explicit about mm-hmm. that. In order, in order to uh, uh, get the doctors on board, they were going to pay doctors the way doctors like to be paid. And the way they pay doctors is a fee for service. So you provide a fee, you you get a service. You provide another fee. Uh, I'm sorry, you provide. I've got a, the horse for right. Yeah, yeah. Get the horse for the car. <laughs> you provide one service, you get a fee. You provide another service, you get another fee. And the more services you provide, the more fees you collect. Doctors love that that way of getting paid because they can they have more autonomy. They can increase their incomes. But there are perverse incentives here. If a doctor fails to provide you preventive services that would avoid of uh, additional services down the road, they get paid more for doing that, for, for providing low quality care. They should get paid less, but fee-for-service pays them more. If they injure you such that you require additional services, if they if they misdiagnose you such that you require additional medical services, if they uh, uh, harm you due to a medical error so that not only is there a side effect, but they actually made a mistake and you require more services, they should get paid less and a market would pay them less, but Medicare pays them more if they do that. What that means is that if doctors try to invest in 
providing preventive care that avoids service additional services, uh, in 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 improving their diagnoses so that they avoid uh, additional services or avoiding iatrogenic injury and medical errors, so that they avoid further services. Medicare pays them less, and they suffer financially as a result. And so we haven't seen the sorts of innovations that would reduce all of those that would that, that would push the market toward higher quality care in these areas. And as a result, we have estimates of deaths due to preventable medical errors in this country that run as high as 400,000 per year. That is more than the number of people who have died, who died from the novel coronavirus from COVID-19 in 2020. And it is an order of magnitude greater than the conventional estimates of how many people die because of a lack of healthcare or health insurance in this country. So it's odd that before Congress passed Obamacare, we had people arguing, well, we have to cover people, we have to expand health insurance when the government's expansion of health insurance, its largest expansion of health insurance, the Medicare program, is fueling a problem that is causing more deaths than the lack of insurance is causing. I, so, and the Medicare program is contributing to this problem, and and would continue to contribute to this problem under uh, a Medicare for all system. I like the argument, though. I'm going to go talk to my wife actually, and just say, "Look, I'm going to keep eating pizza and cheeseburgers, and expect to lose weight because the more that I gain, the more opportunities that I have to actually go through and lose the weight." And there, now every time, like, "Oh, look at me! I just <laughs> dropped three pounds. Isn't this great?" Because it doesn't matter that I put on forty to begin with. But look at me! I dropped three pounds. I'm going to see if that works with my wife. We're going to see if I can make that argument. <laughs> I think I think those perverse incentives are kind of what drives a lot of the problems we see here in Portland. And I'm I'm sure you've seen Portland on the news. It's we've been on the news about once a week uh, nationally. Um, our, our, the homelessness problem here is ridiculous, and we spend so much money on homelessness services, and they're all pay per service. Like you say, they're they're pay per person that they've seen, and so there's this p- perverse incentive to not actually solve the homelessness problem, but to just keep serving people so that they can keep their budget and they can keep hiring people and they can keep you know. And, and I'm sure Passing you know new bond there, there's measures. right there, there's not yeah past new bond measures without a plan. I'm sure people don't get into that business to perpetuate the the homelessness problem, but I think they've got to be in the back of their heads that if all the homeless in Portland disappeared, that they'd all be out of a job. And that like, that's got to be in the back of their head somewhere. And I'm, I'm, I, it's just kind of goes to what you're saying with Medicare. That's an interesting point. I hadn't, um, hadn't thought of. So what you, what your, what your solution would be, or, I mean, solutions kind of a you think it would be it would be better off if we had private insurance that if we expanded social security for instance gave everybody a couple extra bucks once you're retired to go out on the open market purchase their own insurance and then isn't isn't insurance a paper paper um paper not paper fee paper uh paper paper procedure as well no not necessarily not necessarily there are other ways of organizing financing and delivering medical care than the way that the Medicare program locked in place. You've got what you've got one of them in Oregon, Kaiser Permanente. In fact, I've got a former research assistant who's working at Kaiser Permanente of Oregon in their Medicare Advantage wing. Uh, this is uh, the part of Medicare where Medicare contracts with private insurance companies. But the Kaiser model which is essentially the same as the Veterans Health Administration model, although Kaiser's private, the 
VA is government. And the same as the British National Health Service, another uh, example of this model launched by government is the health system and the insurance company are, are all under the same corporate umbrella. So uh, it, the, the same entity uh, provides the insurance and high, owns the hospitals, hires the doctors and so forth. And instead of getting, and when you have that sort of a system in place, instead of getting more money, the more stuff you do, uh, you get uh, all the premiums you collect from your enrollees are uh, constitute the budget you have to provide health services for all of them. And uh, whatever you don't spend, uh, you get to keep. So instead of making more money by providing more services, they can uh, make money by providing fewer. And you can see the obvious perverse incentive that exists there. Right. I was going to say, I think you got the similar problem there. <laughs> well, it's the it's the opposite problem, actually. Well, right, the opposite is, problem. Uh, and healthcare is so complicated that you're never going to find a perfect way of paying providers that doesn't have any perverse incentives. But what you need is competition between all ways of paying providers, open competition on a level playing field, so that none of them can get carried carried away by their perverse incentives. Uh, so that if the fee for service doctors are providing too many services or exposing their uh, their patients to too many harms from those low-value, unnecessary services, uh, and and uh, the premiums for that type of insurance are rising uh, uh, to reflect all those additional unnecessary services. Consumers can walk across the street to a model like Kaiser, which is going to offer lower premiums and help them avoid those unnecessary services and the harms that often result. Meanwhile, if Kaiser goes too far by denying necessary services to people, those enrollees, the consumers can go across the street to the fee-for-service providers. And what competition does is it forces each to improve on the dimensions of quality where they are weak, the dimensions of quality that their payment systems uh, directly discourage. Their payment system might discourage those dimensions of quality, but competition requires them to pay attention to those dimensions. We don't have that in the United States. We have the government heavily favoring fee-for-service. And as a result, we get so many of the harms that fee for service uh, that fee for service creates. And the Medicare program is one of the two great biggest things the government is doing to uh, to favor fee for service and uh, block the sorts of innovations that would uh, the quality innovations that would otherwise be allowing seniors and everyone else to live longer, healthier lives. So one one issue I can see with that, a potential issue, uh, and this is something that Obamacare tried to fix, which I'm not sure, I mean, obviously it, it didn't do great, but is the denial of coverage for pre-existing conditions. You know, once you get to a certain point in life, you you basically have pre-existing conditions, Every almost everyone does. And so if you're just giving people an extra uh, payment for, um, for to, to go out and buy health insurance. I mean, what's to stop the health insurance people from saying, you know what, you're going to cost $100,000 a month for the rest of your life. Uh, just no thank you. Would, would, would you just have to have some sort of legislation in place that would prevent that, that, that you have to accept people regardless? Well, that's what Obamacare tried to do, and it didn't end right. discrimination against the sick. Obamacare is actually making discrimination against the sick worse because it is telling insurance companies we don't care if this person costs you $61,000 a year to insure. 
you can only charge them a $10,000 premium. That creates a $51,000 incentive for the insurance companies to do whatever they can to make their coverage so bad for those sick people that those sick people will go to their competitors and break down their competitors' bottom line by $61,000. Economic research has shown that is happening in Obamacare. There is a race to the bottom in health insurance quality, uh, and that is a form of discrimination against the sick. Before Obamacare, those $61,000 patients, and I'm thinking of specifically of MS patients here, those patients, if they had bought health insurance uh, when they were still healthy, then gotten an MS diagnosis, the insurance companies would not have the same incentives to make their coverage worse for MS patients. Those MS patients would be getting better coverage than they're getting under Obamacare. So just passing a law saying, we don't like this bad thing and, uh, you can't and we're going to out, you can't do it anymore, doesn't make that bad thing go away. Uh, the law of unintended consequences is a more powerful force than uh, than than federal statute. Well, I mean, so, now, so you're, you're, now, you're, now your you're, question your question about what do we do about those yeah. folks is is important. If uh, a Medicare enrollee costs hundred thousand uh, dollars a month to uh, to to cover, then the solution is that Medicare is already paying that cost right now. Uh, and if we gave and if we gave enrollees uh, the money that Medicare is spending on their behalf in cash, then we should give more to those those enrollees who are costing a hundred thousand dollars a month. That's actually very rare that anyone's going to cost a million dollars a year. Right. But let's say that. But but it might happen. So so if Medicare is going to spend that much on that person, what Medicare should do is just give that the enrollee that money, and the insurance companies. They can charge premiums that reflect actuarial risk, that, that, that reflect a person's expected medical expenses. They might charge that person, uh, they will charge that person higher premiums, but that person would have the money that she needs to pay those higher premiums because we're not giving her the average amount that Medicare spends on enrollees. We're giving, we would be giving her, the government would be giving her uh, a, uh, a Medicare check that reflects her expected medical expenses and would en enable her to afford uh, a basic package of health insurance uh, that uh, uh, at actuarially fair premiums. And, uh, and, and Medicare already does that to some extent. I mentioned before that Medicare contracts with private insurance companies through what we call the Medicare Advantage Program. And when Medicare, and Medicare tells those private insurers, you can only charge the enrollee, you know, uh, a community rated premium like Obamacare does. But then on the back end, Medicare provides additional payments to those insurance companies for patients that cost more. So really what Medicare is trying to do is it's trying to mimic market prices in health insurance. When you add up what the enrollee pays and the, uh, the the additional payment on the back end for Medicare, they're trying to mimic actuarially fair premiums, which is great, fine. But once you've done that calculation of what an actuar actuarially fair premium is, there's no reason for the government to hold on to that money. They should just give that money to the enrollees because uh, it, then enrollees will be able to choose a package of health insurance coverage that better meets their needs. And that, and in a market that doesn't create the sort of perverse incentives that Obamacare creates and even Medicare creates for insurers to uh, have a race to the bottom in quality. So what you're saying- I'd be, I'd be curious to know, actually, I um, and I know we're kind of coming up on time. Is there any, like you mentioned Bernie Sanders earlier, is there anybody who's got legislation either there in DC or at, at somewhere at the state level, you know, Texas just came out with a good law, Florida just came out with a good law. 
anything that you're kind of keeping an eye on as as something you can hold up to say like this is an example of a, a good idea or this is an example of good legislation so i'm actually not in dc right now i'm in bernie sanders vermont i would say bernie oh. sanders <laughs> home state of vermont but its home state is new york this is actually the trades he's, he's from brooklyn we, we've got a senator like that too uh, Wyden, Wyden lives in New York. <laughs> is he from New York? No, he's I, from here, but he lives there now. So it's a little Oh, okay. Yeah, Bernie, think, uh, think, Bernie a little different. Although he's been here in Vermont. He's lived in Vermont for so long. Still hasn't lost that accent. And it, <laughs> but it's, it's okay. I love the accent. So uh, the question is, is there any decent legislation out there? And the answer is not much. In fact, uh, legislation on, on the healthcare front appears to be getting worse. Hmm. There were uh, 20, 25 years ago, some uh, decent bipartisan attempts to move Medicare in the direction that I've been indicating it should move. Uh, those have sort of fallen by the wayside. Uh, also, 25 years ago, Congress uh, passed legislation to reform the Medicaid program, which is uh, a program Congress well, created at the same time it created Medicare. It's ostensibly for low-income people, but there's a lot of middle and upper middle-income people who are on that program. That legislation 25 years ago would have dramatically reduced the government's role, in, the federal government's role in that program. That has fallen by the wayside. Uh, years ago, uh, some members of Congress introduced legislation based on an idea that I had advanced to expand health savings accounts to let workers control. $900 billion of their earnings that their employers currently control. Because there's a feature of the tax code that lets their employers control, lets your employer control your money and use it to purchase your health insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, I proposed expanding health savings accounts in a way that would let you control that money. It's about $15,000 per person with family coverage. Uh, so it's not an insubstantial amount of money. And in the aggregate, it's more than the federal government spends on the Medicare program. Uh, I had we haven't seen that HSA expansion reintroduced in this Congress yet, uh, but uh, this is something we're working on at the Cato Institute to bring more attention to these ideas so they gain more currency in the in the public square, and hopefully uh, members of Congress do start it, introducing and enacting better legislation than we've seen them do with regard to healthcare. Once they hear this episode, they'll be ready to roll. I think that's going to put it over the top. <laughs> well, I, I still have probably three or four questions that I would love to ask, but we are just about out of time. So uh, one of the things that we like to do before we let our ghosts go is ask the question, uh, who is your favorite Republican? Or uh, I don't know if you are a Republican at this point, who, like, favorite libertarian politician. I don't know. Pick somebody. I don't like uh, showering praise on politicians. Uh, okay. There's, there's, there's even there, there is even to the extent where there is one former Republican, now libertarian politician who really impresses me, but I'm not even going to name him because, because uh, I, I don't like at the Cato Institute. We're nonpartisan. We don't get involved in politics. I don't want to uh, uh, okay start Fair. start start showering praise upon people who are involved in a really shady business. Uh, so uh, let me do this. There's there's one libertarian who's a former colleague of mine at the Cato Institute who's very active on social media, uh, who has changed my thinking about a lot of uh, 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 public policy issues for the better. And I, I like to hold him up as a sort of the, the uh, uh, paradigmatic example of what a libertarian is. Uh, his name is Adam Bates. Uh, if you find 
you can find him on Facebook. I think that's where he's more active uh, or most active. You can uh, uh, usually find him directly. If not, you can probably find him in my friends list or something like that. Uh, and uh, and he does a lot of work. He used to work at the Cato Institute uh, in our Center for Constitutional Studies, or was it criminal uh, justice? But he's now working for a refugee rights organization, does a lot of work on immigration. Uh, I uh, have learned a lot from following him. And other libertarians disagree with him. That's fine, but uh, but I do like to hold. I do like to point people toward his uh, his his Facebook page as uh, as a w- good way to learn about libertarian ideas. Got it. <clears throat> awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show with us. And uh, yeah, it's it's been great. I I think I've learned a lot. I got a lot to think about. So thanks again, and listeners, we will happy talk to do to it you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.